Hi, everybody. Steve Cady here at Bowling Green State University with our Doctorate in Organization Development and Change program. This is our symposia series, and uh, we have a, a program of thought leader development in our doctorate program, people that are on the mission to go out and take their knowledge, advanced knowledge, and uh, bring it out into the world to help transform organizations, revitalize communities, and develop human potential. And they're doing some amazing work. Our, our program has people from all over the country as well as outside of our country coming in. We have people at all in all different industries and perspectives and um, publishing already on all kinds of great topics. And I'm just super proud of our program, our students and the work that we're doing. The symposium series is intended to bring and highlight the great work of our students, uh, our partners in the community and the field, such as Barry. So we're really glad to have you here today, Barry. It's, it's nice to have you coming in and connecting with us. Your work resonates. Herb is a particular fan of your work. He's been really uh, 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 digging into that as he's doing his research and his writing and others, me included, uh, uh, really find it to be a, a very elegant way to address uh, and move on critical issues. So thank you for your contributions, Barry. And I'll turn it over to you and, and enjoy the time with you today. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. And welcome, everyone. Uh, um, Merry Christmas or holiday season. Happy Hanukkah. And uh, let me get started here. I'm just going to share my screen and... <clears throat> Uh, so what we, um, can everybody uh, see the screen here? I just want to make sure I'm broadcasting. You can see it? Yes, yep, you can see okay, it. Okay, great. Thank, okay, great. Thank you. Um, so the primary focus is going to be on how a polarity lens uh, uh, addresses uh, racism and climate change. It will pri primarily focus on poverty, racism, and sexism with just a, a parallel note on climate change, because what I'm going to be doing is talking about how uh, a polarity lens is helpful. It's a paradoxical change model in which it assumes that the, from a polarity perspective, if you want to embrace the upside of the other pole of a polarity, and you're in the downside of one pole and you want to embrace the upside of the other pole, um, that a gap analysis change model gets in the way. It doesn't help you. And your efforts to get to the upside of the other pole gets resisted by an either or mindset that believes that if you're going to go to the other pole, you're going to let go of the original pole. And so we're going to look at how, uh, how that either or mindset is a root cause and perpetuator of poverty, racism, and sexism, and what we can do about it, which is essentially to add or thinking. So uh, uh, again, a reminder of our mission at Polarity Partnerships is to enhance our quality of life on the planet by supplementing or thinking with and thinking. We're not replacing it, we're supplementing it. So or thinking is essential in basic problem solving, but it doesn't serve us well to use or thinking and basic problem solving or typical gap analysis if we are dealing with a polarity. So the outcomes of this is to under, uh, brief understanding of the small process for leveraging polarities, um, what that is and how that works. And we had a, a, just a brief experience with the polarity assessment and I just wanted to have you experience it to understand its utility. We won't take long with it, but I wanted you to just be aware that you can assess any polarity with any size organization um, once you have identified that polarity. 
And finally, understanding how or within helps us address poverty, racism, sexism, and climate change. So a brief introduction, polarities are interdependent pairs, also known as paradox, dilemma, or tensions in the literature. They're energy systems in which we live and work. It's important to appreciate that, that there's a lot of power within a polarity, within that social energy system. Why bother? It will help you effectively lead in turbulent times. Uh, and it'll help you deal with, deal with tensions in systems, with resistance to change, which is gonna be the primary focus here, and with polarization. So those are the primary areas where it can help. And we have a five-step process for addressing a polarity. The first, uh, so the five steps uh, is the acronym SMALL. And we say, uh, you know, focus on small in order to go big. And the S stands for seeing. The first step uh, is to make the distinction between in this issue, in this struggle we're dealing with in our organization, in this change effort we're trying to make, is, is the difficulty we're experiencing or the excitement we're riding, um, is it sitting primarily uh, in a problem to solve or is it primarily sitting in a polarity to leverage? If it is a polarity to leverage, then we need to map it uh, and understand, well, what are the upsides and downsides of the pole? What might be our greater purpose? Once we've mapped any polarity, we can assess it. How well are we doing at getting both upsides, maximizing both upsides and minimizing the downsides? We take the assessment, we learn from that assessment. Okay, what are the results? What does that tell us? And then we can leverage. And we leverage a polarity by generating action steps to support each upside and by identifying early warnings that will let us know early if we're getting into the downside of one pole or the other. So in all of those steps, we need to engage key stakeholders. Um, so we engage them in, in, in seeing the polarities in the first place. We engage them in, in identifying the map, creating the assessment, learning from the assessment, and then how, what are the action steps and early warnings? So in every step of the way, we like to engage key stakeholders. So I'm gonna give you a quick look at assessment results around the assessment of polarity and change. So let me see here. What I have to do is I gotta stop sharing a second and go down here and uh, get the assessment results. Uh, let me see, I can share screen again and go to assessment results now. Okay, so can, uh, can you, everybody see these results? If somebody can answer. Yes, yep, we okay, see it. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, again, I'm gonna do this rather quickly because um, Often when we tell people that you can assess a polarity, they have a bunch of questions about the assessment. Can you assess with, if somebody doesn't know anything about polarities, how long does it take, et cetera. So I asked you to just fill out a, a simple assessment around stability and change here. And I, I just wanna run through now and show you what's possible with this. So you can create demographic groups, as much demographics as you want. In this, we just uh, looked at age as a demographic, and if you'll notice, about half the group is, is uh, 50 or younger and half are 50 or older. Um, uh, we also just looked at some professional breakdowns and you can see this breakdown. If you click on it, you can see how many uh, there are. Uh, business and industry, there's five. Education administration, there's three. 
uh, teaching, uh, count, uh, you know, uh, consulting to uh, gender, uh, three options, male, female, or choose not to respond. So I just grabbed those three so that we could um, take a look at a couple of demographic comparisons to show you how that works. So if we look here at the polarity summary, you'll notice on the left here, we've got this danger zone and then there's um, being in a risky space and then there's good to great. So, and in this case, the average of what you all, what 13 people responded to is a 57, um, which, is, um, which is in that risky space. So we would definitely, a lot of room for improvement here. Uh, and so let's look at how, how that breaks out. So we have the polarity map here with, uh, and I'm just going to uh, simplify it a little bit. Um, so the first thing we're paying attention to is the desire to stay the same or the desire to change. So stability and change is the polarity. And then what we're looking for is, you, as you'll notice in this left quadrant, it's um, you're looking for in response to the questions, you'd like to almost always be in each upside in terms of the frequency. You'd almost always like to be having those benefits. That's why this sample uh, infinity loop shows the optimal that you could have. Also here, you want to almost always get the upside of this pole. And notice the, the arrangement of frequency is switched here. So you want to almost never be in the downsides, almost never. And the scores go a 0, 25, 50, 75, and 100 is what you get for uh, each of these quadrants. So you'd like to be 100 on each of these, almost always in each upside, and 100 here, almost every in each downside, and that would lead to a net score of 100. So now if we're just gonna add, uh, here are the items. There, are, there were three questions for each quadrant that you, were, uh, that you were taking. And so if we look here at the upper left quadrant, um, the, some positive results from stability is we value the tried and true solutions we've been using. We have clear and or understood ways of getting our work done. And we hold on to business processes that, that we are confident will support us in achieving our current uh, future needs. The upside then of desire to change, we welcome solutions that keep us on the leading edge. We're open to new and or improved ways of working. And our drive to adopt best practices is grounded in the realities of our current and future business needs. And then we have the opposite down below. Um, so, uh, so that's this now. Now here's the, the loop that showed up in terms of the average results here. And, and quickly, we notice what here we've got is a 66 here and a 58 here. So sight, slightly stronger, the average is slightly stronger for getting the benefits of stability in this system. It's, it's between sometimes and often. And here, it's also between sometimes and often, but you'd like to be often getting these upsides minimally. So that would be 75 would be an average of, if you had 75 would be often, you'd like to have 75 or above. Um, and here we look at here we, in terms of the downside, notice we've got a 45 here. So this is uh, on average, the systems that you were thinking of, the 13 who stated this are getting more benefits of stability than they are from change. And they're also extremely more vulnerable here. So they're getting a lot of downsides of stability. And so the desire here for this organization would be, how could we improve some of these benefits of stability and pay attention to what we can do to maximize uh, these upsides? 
And there's different ways we can show these results. We can break them out by, by individual score. So you can see, and the color lets you know whether you're, uh, you're in that good to great category or in that uh, you know, danger category, or if you're you know, in, in, real, uh, in real trouble, which shows up as a, as a red. And this is the one statement where uh, the, it's, it's, uh, the score is, is very problematic. We are generally resistant to the idea of change and that's, there's a quite a, that got a stronger score. Then you can, you can also share them out in terms of by that which you got the highest score and that which you got the lowest score. Um, and then what you can do is you can, you can go down and look at action steps and early warnings. And sometimes we have those already built in that you can uh, compare and contrast. So let me do one more just quick thing with this so that you can see how you can play with them really quickly. So let's say we want to add a demographic group. And so let's uh, take for one demographic group, we're going to have, we'll have female, we'll add that group. And then we're going to add another group uh, here to the demographic. And you can do any combination of these that you want, but I'm just going to grab these because I noticed there was a little bit of thematic difference between the two. I was checking this out just a little bit earlier this morning. So now what happens is you can see that they aren't that different. Uh, between uh, men and women, um, but you can see a little bit of difference uh, in these scores. Notice how they break out. You've got the average score, and then you've got female or male. Um, and in most cases, um, uh, women are tending to score things higher than the men are in this system. Now we could check out as to why that is or why not. It's not a, a very a real significant thing, but it is. Uh, there is, this is a difference between 50 and 25 on this one. We are generally resistant to the idea of change. Um, and uh, men tend to, of the men participating here, uh, tend to see that as more of a problem than the women do, for example. And we, you can break this out, you know, by all sorts of, of groups. Now you can see the scoring for each one of these and see the comparison between the average and then the women and the men because we broke it out that way and get the results. And so with every one of these, you can see, okay, how, how does that look in the question? So you could break out de demographic groups. So if you were working with a community, um, you could, um, I'm just gonna stop sharing here a second. Uh, and um, what you can do is, um, let me go back here and share screen now because I think that gives me a chance to um, yeah okay so can you see that now the presentation yes yes okay. all right so um, are there maybe we could take just a, a, a brief moment to see if there are any uh, questions about that then I would like to move on um, to uh, just a question or two about the about the assessment. Anything uh, in Michelle Bradley, yeah. and I'm wondering, uh, and no one else on the call will be surprised, but how how were your categories developed? Um, oh, in terms of in terms of demographics? Uh, no, in terms of the yellow, orange, or red groupings. Oh. How did you determine the score that would 
be a danger score, your methodology? Um, well, um, we, were, we, we just looked at um, a history of, of the work we had done with, with organizations. And, um, and so in one sense, it's, it's relatively um, um, arbitrary in terms of what, what organizations experience it as, as really problematic or not. And so those numbers seem to seem to correspond with with um, uh, clients' assessments of what would they what would they give to that category? How would they see it um, uh, when we looked at the results? So we got results before we put those categories in place. So okay. they, they they came from a series of of uh, of assessments that we've been we've been doing these assessments by the way, working on this assessment process since 1994, and it keeps evolving. So that's where it came from. Thank you. Yeah. So, so let me shift into this next section then. Um, so um, what I'd like to talk about now is um, there are going to be two chapters from, from and volume one of the foundation's book on polarity thinking. And this is, this is, there'll be chapter 29 and 30. And so the story about uh, this chapter starts with Dr. Victor Garcia at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, he was the founder of the trauma center for Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And Cincinnati Children's Hospital is located in the Avondale neighborhood of Cincinnati, which is one of the most violent neighborhoods. I think it is the most violent neighborhood uh, in Cincinnati. And so uh, what, what Dr. Garcia was seeing coming into the trauma center was a lot of children, since the children's hospital, were coming in with wounds, knife wounds, gun wounds. Um, and, and he got really, you know, obviously concerned about and taking care of these children coming through. And one of them was China. Um, and China was eight, is eight years old, was eight years old at the time. And she was walking in the neighborhood uh, uh, with, a, with a man who was a target of a drive-by shooting. The result of him being shot at was that she got her eye shot out and got paralyzed from the waist down. So China is just one example of uh, Dr. Garcia's concern. He said, you know, these children keep coming. I keep operating on them. Of course, we have to do that. Um, but the fact is that, these, that uh, China is a symptom of something. What I'd like to do is not just be dealing with the symptoms, uh, these kids that are coming through uh, impacted by gun shootings, et cetera. But I'd like to get at the root cause. How can we somehow reduce the number of kids coming through with gunshot wounds and deal at the community level? And so he created an organization called Core Change, which was an effort to, to change the, the communities so they were safer, so there were less of these happening. And part of that process was he came to a, an organization development change conference and he spoke there about his concern for help and a system getting a systems perspective to reduce violence in the in the neighborhood uh, in Cincinnati. So um, he realized that focusing on symptoms alone is not enough. So he wanted to look at root causes. So as we got into exploring this, since he and I were both at this conference, we got in a conversation and he invited me to come with him and to do some work with him in Cincinnati. Uh, which we did, and we did a mastery program there in Cincinnati. And out of that exploration um, was part of where this, uh, this showed up, was in that work in Cincinnati. So we've got symptoms and we've got root causes. 
And part of the things that we were noticing was that, that you could see uh, eight-year-old China being shot as a symptom. And you might say, well, what's the root cause behind that? So the first thing is, well, the poverty and racism within uh, the Avondale neighborhood where she lives could be seen as a root cause. But then that begged the question, what if poverty and racism was seen as a symptom of something we needed to go further, go deeper into this and understand? They could say, well, we could look at systemic institutional policies and practices you know, that lead to poverty and racism. How do we address systemic racism and institutional policies and practices? But what happens if we look at systemic institutional policies and practices as also a symptom? Then where do we go underneath that? <coughs> Excuse me. So um, often what we do is we look for an evil source or a bad or evil source. So now we say, well, these are evil people who are creating these evil systems, these bad systems and creating these policies and practices. And so we try to find an evil source. And my suggestion is that looking for an evil source is not helpful. Um, uh, it, in, in other words, looking for a group that is inherently evil. Um, and so what happens is when you start to look for an evil source, it ends up becoming some version of us or them. And this gets to blaming and projecting on other people, stuff we can't own. So it's easy for me to not own my own racism and find somebody else to blame uh, for uh, systemic racism without owning, in, owning my own. So we get into this us and M, them projection. But what if, what if there's an alternative? Maybe there's an alternative source to systemic institutional policies and practices. And I'm suggesting that alternative source is or thinking without and thinking. So what I'm suggesting is there are four positive desires that we all have. We, we grow up with them, they're inherent to our culture, any culture in the world, they're inherent to our culture and they're positive. One of them is the desire to be clear and a, a decisive problem solver. If we got problems, it's helpful to be a problem solver. The desire to protect my family or my organization or my country. The desire to provide for my family or organization or country. And this usually gets focused on us, whatever's my group, my country, my organization. So to, to be clear, to, to protect and provide, also to belong. I wanna be belong within a group and that group becomes us, my family, I wanna to belong to my family, you know, my community, my organization, et cetera. So um, when there are power differences, the dominant group's desires win over marginalized groups. So when we look at power being brought to these four desires, it shows up as sy systemic disparities that reinforce bias and inequity. So this is how it works. Pay attention to these four desires. Now, from a polarity perspective, um, oh, by the way, final point here is that um, the systemic disparities that reinforce bias and inequity, that contributes to the creation and perpetuation of sexism, racism, and poverty. So for example, there's gonna be these four polarities that I think I'm stacking them. So we're looking at how they combine with each other. So the first one is or thinking and and thinking. The next one is claiming power for us and sharing power with them. Another one is freedom and equality. And the final one is justice and mercy. And what I'm suggesting happens is that we 
we tend to focus on or thinking initially. That's the, the source, <laughs> the original source here is we tend to focus on or thinking. And we come by or thinking naturally. It is about solving problems. So or thinking and being a problem solver is an upside of or thinking. So that's an important benefit. Now, claiming power for us and sharing, uh, sharing power, if we see it from an or perspective, the claiming power for us is important because it helps us protect us. We need adequate power to protect our family, et cetera, from harm. So protection becomes an important thing. Um, the, the next uh, value is around freedom. Freedom to provide for, to take initiative, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to work hard, to generate income, to provide for my family or to provide, you know, organization to provide. And finally, justice. Um, uh, we focus on justice. We obey laws in order to belong. You know, if you want to belong in this organization, then you need to obey the rules. And so we obey the rules in order to gain membership. So notice how these four things now fit as the upside of four poles of polarity. What's missing, all of these are great things, but without their partner, they become dysfunctional. So or without and becomes dysfunctional, claiming power without sharing power becomes dysfunctional, freedom without equality does, and so does justice without mercy. So what's missing in this stack is the benefits of the other pole. So let's just walk through these for a second. So or thinking without and thinking. We already know that or thinking without and thinking leads to vicious cycles as we fight between two poles uh, when they're interdependent. So that leads to vicious cycles. So we've talked about that in previous sessions. So I wanna just go to the next one here, which is claiming power for us or sharing power with them. And so we, when we choose, and this is often unconscious, when we arrive with or thinking as our preference or our predisposed orientation, our unconscious bias for or thinking, when we bring that or thinking to the look at claiming power and sharing power, it sets up a, uh, a real issue for us um, in that we, we then look at this as an or issue. So when we look at this from an or perspective, it looks like this. We, we want the upside of claiming power. So we have the power to protect our interests. And we want to avoid with or thinking, it's like, are we gonna have the power to protect or are we gonna be defeated and unable to protect our interests? So we're gonna be oppressed or seen as inferior. So the fear of the downside of sharing power uh, and, and the desire for the value of holding on to the upside of claiming power to protect, that leads to an overfocus on claiming power for us to the neglect of sharing power with them because we don't think we can do it. It would mean a loss of power because power is a zero sum game. So when we bring or thinking to this, what ends up is we lose the benefits of sharing power with them, which is they have the power to protect their interests. When we lose that, it looks like this. They are defeated and unable to protect their interests. So what happens is we have military superiority leads to assumptions of superi superiority in all other ways. ways. This includes male superiority, white superiority, rich superiority, and that gets to sexism, racism, and poverty. So for example, um, in, the, in the United States, when my uh, ancestors came from Europe and, and started occupying North America, we were militarily superior, which allowed us to take land from Native Americans, also allowed us to, to take in uh, people who were free in Africa, 
put in chains, arrive in chains, and we had power over them. So we took the lands from native people and we uh, created plantations on which we used slave labor. And we had the power over both. But this, the military superiority that allowed us to take the land and have, have power over uh, people of color resulted in us assuming superiority in other ways as well. So why did, why, why did we win? Because we're smarter, you know, because we're more frugal, because God's on our side. We can give all sorts of attributes to the reason for our superiority militarily that assumes superiority in all other ways. So that's where white supremacy comes from, if you will, and male supremacy. Um, so that leads to them being defeated and treated as inferior, whoever they are. In this case, the United States, it would be, it would be um, Native Americans and, and other people of color and women, and they get seen as, as inferior. Um, so now we continue to bring that or thinking. Now we're on top in terms of we have military power and control, um, and we have this or thinking mindset. We bring that to the notion of freedom and equality, and let's look at that one. So when we look at freedom and equality, the upside of freedom is I can provide for myself and my family and my organization. This is entrepreneurial initiative, you know, going ahead, the upsides of capitalism. And I can create abundance for some. What do I mean for abundance? I mean, talking about abundance of healthcare, education, jobs, uh, food, water, shelter, and safety. So, but if I look at abundance for some with an or mindset, then I can neglect our needs and my family and organization's needs. And, and what happens is we lose our abundance. So the either or mindset again here leads for me going after abundance for my family or my organization. And what gets lost is the basics for all. And that leads to uh, neglect for the basic uh, needs for them and inequality. So this leads to gross inequality, right? So, so what we have uh, with this focus, we end up is they lose the basics. Again, they being people who are marginalized end up losing the basics. And finally, we look at justice and mercy. Uh, on the justice side, we obey the law, we stand up, we use laws to protect and provide. But if we look at the downside of mercy, it's, it's the opposite of obeying the laws. There's inaction in the name of forgiveness, a lawlessness is tolerated, we cannot protect and provide, and those who embody mercy are seen as less than. So now we look at moving towards justice, if we do that to the neglect of mercy, what we, what we lose is the ability to forgive, to understand, and use forgiveness to heal self and others and relationships. And that leads to this downside. The laws are used to maintain power, slavery, Jim Crow, and the new Jim Crow. And many laws and harsh punishments lead to projecting by those with more power on those with less power. So whatever I can't own as my fault, as my doing, I project on others. And so, so we, we, project on, uh, uh, we project on, for example, Native Americans and people of color, we can project laziness on them and in order to, to consider ourselves to be industrious. And we can, we can claim again uh, our, our superiority over them and project things we don't want to own onto them. So that's the final uh, straw in this combination. And it leads to our cruelty to them. And our cruelty um, uh, is done, our dehumanizing of, of, of slaves, for example, gets legitimated by dehumanizing them, by being, having them be less than. So 
that combination uh, leads to, it causes and perpetuates poverty, racism, and sexism. Um, so if we say, well, let's stop this, our normal change process is, well, that's the problem, you know, gross inequality. Let's go after, uh, have a strategy, a gap analysis to go after basics for all. We will experience resistance to that effort, even amongst people who believe we need to move that direction. That resistance will come from people who have a value of abundance for some and a fear of losing it. And so uh, that leads to uh, that downside. So that's the, the fear process that gets in the way. But what can we do? We can supplement or think with hand thinking as an essential element to interrupt sexism, racism, and poverty in all contexts. So what we can do is we can solve problems. We can hold on to or thinking in order to solve problems. And we can embrace and thinking so that polarities get leveraged. Now we can bring and thinking to claiming power and we can share power to protect their interests. So we can go after freedom in order to have abundance for some, and we can go after equality and provide basics for all. We can go after justice in which we have accountability and belong, and we can go after mercy and forgiveness. And so that leads to an interruption of poverty, racism, and sexism. Um, so by the way, it's not an accident that the four pol poles on the left tend to be masculine poles, and the four poles on the right tend to be feminine. Um, so open to questions and answers. I'll stop uh, sharing and we can see what your thoughts are about this. So you can put things in the chat and maybe, um, uh, maybe Steve, if you would look in the chat, if anything's coming in there and share, share stuff that's coming in there, but individually just uh, stop. Uh, you can just, uh, um, you know, um, uh, take yourself off mute and ask the question directly also. So when you started off um, with the, the or dilemma and, and these, and needing the and, my, my mind automatically went to De Bono's lateral thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, where, where, you know, we try to organize by categorizing, we try to simplify things and, and it feels like this, this concept of needing the or and the and is a way of bringing to, to the table a little bit more and getting people just to stretch their minds just a little bit more. Is, is that where this is all coming from or? Um, uh, yes, well, it didn't come from him, but it parallels. So, so there's a lot it of, does. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of work out there and there's called, you know, paradox or, or dilemma as well as polarity, a lot written about the interdependent pair and interdependency in the world. And so mm -hmm. what we're bringing is a map and a set of principles to suggest how this interdependency works. And it overlaps significantly with a lot of other great writing and insights. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way that you laid out the, you know, the different um, levels with the uh, getting down to the root cause. Very nice. Thank you. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Other questions or insights? Hi, um, I'm still trying to like digest because this was a lot to take in. Yes. Um, but I'm finding some parallels myself between the Gestalt courses that I just finished and the I-Thou thinking being on a continuum and kind of seeing the I-Thou within this polarity and wondering if you just, was that intentional? Or? Um, yes. As a matter of fact, um, 
the the in 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 Buber's first writing about I and thou, he talks about the world of I thou and I it, and that is a polarity, and it's not on a continuum in the sense we often think about a continuum that slides back and forth. It um it is more two variables that are inter that are interdependent, um, and so. Um, it, so, for example, inhaling and exhaling is not on a continuum. You inhale and you exhale. You don't try to get some point in the middle between inhaling and exhaling because it's not sustainable. You actually are moving, oscillating between those two. It, the energy moves uh, through these. Uh, and so um, the normal notion of, well, let's do a compromise in the middle of something does not work with polarities. Um, with polarities, you have to intentionally empower both poles over time. Now you can be paying attention to both poles, but the energy will move and, and it will move moment to moment, but it will also move decade to decade in organizations. Um, so um, I don't want to talk too long about one thing. So let me go back to other questions. By the way, one other thing about the I thou, the last chapter of the, of the book, I talk about the whole first 33 chapters of the book are in the I it world. The I-thou world is the world in which uh, differentiation disappears, and we we are we appreciate a universal oneness, um, and that's so. That's uh, I think a profound point that uh, that Buber's bringing. Thank you. Yeah, your book is on my nightstand for reading between the holidays, so <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Good. Barry. So, uh, yeah. Barry, I think. Um, Nicole's question is really significant in terms of the relationship to the Gestalt course, because many of the DODC students took that course with Nicole. Mm -hmm. And there's a background of what came first, Gestalt or polarities in your life. Um, um, yeah, so I got my, uh, my training in, uh, uh, in Gestalt in 1973 to 1975 at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland. <laughs> And so um, the, um, uh, what I was struck by with Gestalt was, you know, when I first, that's where I first learned about the notion of paradoxical change. And then the first polarity map um, emerged as I was working as a Gestalt therapist, one-on-one -on -one with a client in which we moved um, around and between the two chairs that we represented. So we physically moved and created the first polarity map. That was in 1975. And what I discovered is I thought this is a way to show how paradoxical change works. So if you put the Gestalt notion of paradoxical change on a polarity map, you'd say if you, the quickest way to move from the pole you're on to the pole you want to embrace is to first embrace the pole you're on. So if you wanna move from stability to change, you need to first embrace stability and then add change. Um, so that's, uh, we call that the getting unstuck process. So thanks for that, that check, Carol. Other, other questions or insights? There's a question in the chat, Barry. Okay. Do you want okay. me to read it or do you want no, to read no, it? Go ahead and read it. Barry, do you think polarity and your assessment tool could be applied to assessments in areas like matching mentor and mentee particularly cross-gender relationships, touches on sexism issues, and also with strategic partnerships, 
bringing two different internal groups or external partners, maybe former competitors forming an alliance and or is key for success in many of these relationships. It seems it would be great for driving awareness of issues like racism across a team or organization to better understand each other and or their evolving customer bases. Um, yes, I think that it has it has application in all those all those areas inquired about. And one of the things that that is helpful about it is that when we're dealing with sexism and racism, we deal with those first. Um, we have we're, most people are familiar with unconscious bias in terms of sexism and racism that we absorb from being in the culture. There is also an unconscious or thinking bias that is stacked on top of that, the sexism and, and racism in the culture. And it's also a cultural bias about pr problem solving and or thinking. And so it's, it's very helpful to be aware that the resistance, for example, the resistance to having basic housing for everyone, the resistance to basic housing for everyone is can be a combination of uh, racism and either or thinking. And the, and the, and the or thinking, um, there's an unconscious bias that, that people would have that if we're gonna provide basic housing for everyone, I at a gut level assume I can't keep my really nice house. I can't have abundance and have them have basics because, because I gotta choose. And so the assumption is the fear is, is like the downside of socialism. Well, everybody's gonna have to live in the same house with the same amount of money you know, devoted to their, to their living residence because that's where you're headed. And so I'm gonna to have to give up my house if I'm serious about providing basic housing for everyone. I'm suggesting that's an or mindset, unconscious or mindset that causes resistance to really implementing the desire to move towards basic housing for everyone. And unless you are explicit about that unconscious possible bias and, and say, wait a minute, let's look at this. Is it possible for us to have abundance for some and basics for all? We're talking about whether we're talking about healthcare, education, whatever it is, if you can make it explicit rather than have it be an, a, a subterfuge that's that's underneath, um, then you've got a better chance of addressing it. It's not, it's not dismissing the unconscious bias in terms of sexism or racism, but it's saying there's more here than that. Um, and if you don't pay attention to that, then you are really undermining your efforts to gain what you're wanting to gain in any of the categories that I listed, um, you know, food, water, healthcare, safety. So other questions or insights? I have another one if nobody else does. Michelle, Nicole, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. You were reading one or? No, I was gonna ask one. Nicole, go first. I, I don't wanna monopolize your time, but what you're saying is now starting to connect some dots for me um, in reading Ingram Kendi's book um, about how to be anti-racist. He makes a statement in there that says that racism and capitalism are inexplicably enjoined. They're conjoined twins. And I was really struggling with that this week, trying to figure out what that meant. Yeah. And your, your paradox here is kind of like helping to untangle that a little bit. Um, one of the things that they, uh, criticism of Kenny though, is that he does not um, attack really systemic racism. And so I don't know if you, do you wanna just, can you talk a little bit about how those two kind of intertwine in your model? Um, well, I, I think that, that um, 
the way they intertwine is, and you're right on in my estimation, Nicole, what you're saying, and that is that that if you look at those four polarities that I identified, um, the or thinking at the top is just is really fundamental. You bring or thinking to the other three, you're in trouble. Um, now, uh, the the another key polarity is um, individual racism and sexism, um, and uh, systemic in, institutional racism and sexism that are built in the laws, etc. That's another polarity. You have to pay attention to both. It, what's clear, though, is that that the, um, uh, the it's human beings that created those systems. And so, what was the mindset that that created the systems that we are now judging? And so, um, you need to go back to well, <laughs> they didn't come out of thin air. Um, they they came out of actually um, an an or mindset about those issues I was talking about and or mindset about or and and that unconscious mindset and then you get right into the power issue and and it's like it's no accident for example that the that the United States uh, in the in the name of serving and protecting and I've done a lot of work with the US military in the name of serving and protecting we spend more money on our military in the United States than the next eight countries military budgets combined now why all that money towards that end? Because the argument has been made that we want to serve and protect and, and it's many people have the either or mindset about power, which is we, we need to claim power over in order to make sure that nobody can harm us. So, if, so that, that uh, power as a deterrent becomes um, a, a claiming of power without sharing power, which leads to an abuse of power. And so that abuse of power is that systemic process, right? So, so you write the laws. You have the power to write the laws. Now you write the laws. It says, for example, you can't teach slaves to, to read. Why? Because reading is an empowering act. And you can't be sharing power. If you can't, <laughs> you can't share power if you have an either or mindset towards power. So if, if we do not address the either or mindset towards power, you'll just have a different way. You can have a whole civil war and after the civil war, you figure out other ways to claim power without sharing it. You have Jim Crow laws that, that don't allow people the right to vote. Why? Because if they had the right to vote, you'd be sharing power through the vote. So you figure out ways to not share power in terms of voting. Still happening today in all the states that are trying to diminish uh, access to, to, to voting, primarily against people who are marginalized, right? So that's a, that's a, that's, the mindset is the same. I can't claim power and share power, so I will claim power, I will figure out a way to do it. Until that mindset shifts, the continual effort will be how to claim power without sharing it. Thank you. Thank you. So Barry, my um, inquiry is based on Michelle, who's our methods expert, and yeah. asked you about um, the validity of the instrument or the mm -hmm items in the instrument. And what this says to me is that several students might in fact be interested in using this as a method within their dissertations. Uh -huh. And I'd like to know if anybody in the polarity um, community has done a dissertation using the assessment or 
what's the experience in terms of traditional doctorate programs or this one, which is action research? Um, yes, uh, some have uh, some have used assessment in their in their doctorates. Um, there are a number of students at um, at Walden University who have used it. I think there's like over 20 of them and they're in different parts of the world. They've used the polarity assessment in relation to their doctorates. They're the, they're the university that have used it most. Um, and the Institute for Polarities of Democracy that operates um, in conjunction with Walden University is one place where that's done. There are also students who have done it um, at other universities with us. I haven't paid much attention to it myself in terms of, of, of monitoring it. We have other people who, who um, uh, uh, teach people the basics in our assessments to support them in doing it so they would know. Uh, Cliff, Cliff, yeah, Cliff. Cliff, yeah, Cliff would know for sure. Um, but there are, yes, there are students who have been using it um, uh, in the United States and around the world. Cliff just got back from uh, working with a group of, uh, of, uh, of people from uh, uh, Brie in, uh, in Brazil just, just last two weeks ago. So yeah, so it's out there and it is being used by graduate students, the simple answer. Thank you. Okay, so I'll bite. Can you give an example of how this can be applied in an organization? I mean, I, you, you show, you've shown kind of the background. How do we use this? Okay, sure. Um, like so, your doctor, how did they, how did they use it? Um, they, uh, uh, they, they used it to assess um, the polarities they were focusing on were there are five polarities that are written up as polarities of democracy. Um, that were that have been uh, have been written up. It's in the chapter in volume two of our book, and they they would look at one or more key polarities, and then they would see because they're looking helping organizations deal with organizational polarities as well as uh, helping communities look at their look at, at polarities that that they would have. Um, one of the places that we have used it in uh, is in police community relations, um, and. Um, the, the place where we have, uh, uh, we have used it in police community relations is in, in Charleston, uh, especially uh, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. And one of the key polarities there um, was what we called engagement and enforcement. So, the, so um, how effectively um, is the, and, and you can assess what you can assess this at the community level. What is the community doing to support enforcement and engagement? And what is the police force doing to support enforcement and engagement? And then you, you can assess that. And, um, uh, and so when I, I was talking with, as a part of our work at Cincinnati, we got quite a ways down the road in exploring this with uh, the police department of Cincinnati before the the chief of police was fired. And, and so our efforts with, with, went with him when he ended up being fired. But in our discussion, what we were looking at um, 
was uh, one key polarity they especially wanted to measure and they wanted to assess it in the whole uh, community of Cincinnati. And so what we had set up was, um, it was gonna be enforcement and engagement. And the, and we were, the demographics, we're gonna break it down by, by neighborhoods, by all the neighborhoods in Cincinnati. And we were going to, uh, uh, if everybody was able to, would be able to go, we were gonna advertise it on, on, the, uh, on community stations, et cetera, that you could just go to this number and you could uh, you know, fill out your own demographics and do the assessment. So you'd get this community assessment and we were gonna intentionally go to, to neighborhoods where people might not have any internet and we're gonna to go to churches and other organizations, uh, mosques, et cetera, and have people um, interview people to get their answers so we could, so they could, so we have have good uh, uh, involvement in terms of involving key stakeholders. You didn't have to have, you know, uh, any sort of electronic connection with uh, with an, with a computer, or whatever, to do it. We were going to have people um, uh, doing that and entering it, and then we could check and see, uh, you know, what was the difference in people's perception by neighborhood. So in higher income neighborhoods, blue collar neighborhoods, low income neighborhoods, what was their perception of of how well the police were were managing the police, the you know the uh, uh, engagement and enforcement, and how well was the community handling enforcement engagement? Because it was this is seen as not just the police responsibility, but it's the community's responsibility. What is the community doing, you know, to support uh, leveraging this polarity? So those are the kind of things that we have uh, that, that we have worked on. Um, we are now. Yeah, in an effort, we're in conversations with a couple of communities in which we're hoping to do something like that with them. It's called the Bridge Project, um, and uh, so we're working on on uh, on doing that, having discussions about it. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, there are. Um, so, so there, and when we do them, by the way, we encourage people to do more than one. So they do a baseline and then they do one, they just, they define the frequency with which they want to do it. Um, uh, and then they, they do it on a regular basis because you're monitoring how effective are we? And then you can, can continually look at our action steps and early warnings that we generated originally, you know, how are we doing now and what else might we want to do? Um, and so we, I, we, we did an assessment with the medical, uh, with the medical school at the University of Cincinnati, uh, and um, and they, you know, broke it down by departments and all of that. And we started that. They're doing that on a, uh, on an annual basis now. But we started that a few years ago, and they're they're continuing to monitor how effectively they are dealing with. Um, I think it is uh, four key polarities that they identified. So they're, they're driven by the, by the community. It's really a bottom up process in terms of, okay, what are the issues? What might be the polarities? Which ones are most important? Okay, how would we map them? So that's, that's, the, that's the one end. You can, you, we also have you know, a list of, I mean, we've done this actually probably hundreds of times now. So we've got a whole list also of polarity assessments that we have done so you can go there and look at one and modify it so it fits your organization if you want to. Um, that's another another option. Barry, I just wanted to <clears throat> offer one thing that's this is really the design challenge for a 
people doing organization development and change work. And the principle of the polarity, uh, going back to the Gestalt, gives, gives a person, a system, an opportunity to notice mm -hmm. and to make explicit that noticing. So there's lots of tools we can use if we, and you can creatively find ways to take the polarity map and help a person or a group to come to some more conscious collective agreement around the polarity. And we can use different tools, right? You can put a map up on the wall and, and you could have uh, uh, groups go up and put stickers up on the wall and the polarities. And then you could have small groups kind of uh, organize them into themes and then as a group, reflect back out to each other and come to a collective agreement about that. You could have them take it one step further and put little green dots next to the most important ones or the ones they do well and reds next to the ones they don't do so well, right? So you can take the, the tool and you can creatively integrate it with other dialogue or other, other um, group uh, sense-making techniques. And what you're, but at the essence of it, it's about making the noticing explicit and concise. And I think you said really well, Nicole, it's to, de to untangle, to untangle and to create some more objectivity, which I think that in and of itself at the premise is that once the group or person notices this, they will be wise enough to know what to do next. And then once they're wise enough, you can use other tools such as prioritization of actions to take and then good project management and tracking and other kinds of things that follow on follow on to that. Absolutely, Steve. Great points, all of them. Absolutely. And just to build on that, uh, uh, Steve, the other thing that is really wonderful to do, and this again comes out of the Gestalt background, is to physically move through the polarity map by having it on the floor. And so you can take uh, people as a, as a group, for example, I've done this often, actually, whenever I have a chance. Um, I just did it at the University of Alabama three weeks ago at their business school. There were about 40 people and we moved physically um, from one space in the map to the other and they collectively generate content. Um, uh, and, uh, and they end up, uh, it, it, we're almost out of time, but, but uh, anyway, you can do that. Have we got a couple more minutes? I just wanna share with you one, one thing that I did in relation to that. C can we go a little bit long? Is that okay? Want to, we want to stay as close as we can, but I think it'd be great to wrap up with this example. And okay, then, okay, and, okay, okay again, we're not done with having you part of what we're doing, Barry. So <laughs> this is uh, not the end. This is the beginning uh, of a lot more conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I, I was at, at at Harvard at 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 Lila, the Learning Innovations Lab at Harvard, and there were uh, 50 people in the room from uh, 30 some organizations in the United States and outside, big organizations like Google, other large organizations, and we got on the on a polarity map um, around complex adaptive systems. And they talked about administrative leadership and entrepreneurial leadership. And, they, and what we did was we physically moved all of us through the map and generated what's the upside of administrative, what's the upside of entrepreneurial and the downsides. And we walked through and generated the content. Then I asked all of them, okay, where would you put yourself, your organization in these quadrants? You know, Where would you be on this, on this flow? And every one of them, every person, all 35 organizations there were in the lower left quadrant, which was the downside of administrative wanting to go to the upside of entrepreneurial. 
all organizations start in the upside of entrepreneurial. So they take off, but they experience the limits of entrepreneurial alone. They get in the downside of entrepreneurial and they go back to get claim the administrative side, right? The centralized coordinated. <laughs> but the problem is all the leaders become the administrative types and you find yourself in the downside of administrative wanting to go back to entrepreneurial and the resistance is huge because of the or mindset. And that's why all of them is no accident. All of them just agreed. That's, that's why they came to Lila, the learning innovations lab, because they wanted to re-stimulate innovation in their organizations. In the organization's life cycle, they were caught in the downside of administrative. So anyway, that's something you can do. And physically, uh, people get it really well when you physically move around. So thanks for letting me have a little time there, Steve. Oh, no, it's, it's wonderful. I, I, uh, I, I think we got the polarity of wanting more time with you and having to work within the time we have. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great. Thank you for your time. Uh, this is you. wonderful work that you're doing and, and your commitment, your sustained commitment to bringing this work to the world in, in very impactful and important ways. Um, it's a real blessing. So thank you for staying Sticking with it, as I would say, because thought leadership is one of the hallmarks of our program and thought leadership at the core is creating knowledge and disseminating or scaling it so that you can make a difference while you sleep. Yeah. Perfect example is Nicole is going to be reading over the break. She's got your book on her nightstand. She's going to have a chance to read it. And you might be having a nap while she's reading it. You're making a difference in her life while she's reading uh, thought leadership, I also think of it like the great recipe, you know, a uh, person with a master's degree um, will be great at taking recipes and using them and applying them. But as we move into the doctoral level and thought leadership like you have, and it, it's you create recipes that get disseminated, get used, get duplicated. You create your recipe, people make copies and share it with others. And so your ability to create something that's accessible, to write it up, to create workshops, to put it out there, to build a community around your work, those are all the hallmarks of great thought leadership. So you're a role model that I hope our students can learn from, and not only in content, but in the person that you are. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah.